Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Together, we research and break down complex issues facing our society, and we bring you our findings every week. Our promise to you is to bring honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to try to make it really clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about research. Naturally, we're human, and our blind spots and our biases are going to show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We just want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful and beneficial way. Due to the nature of our podcast, some of the things we talk about can get pretty heavy and maybe divisive. We try to lighten the mood and avoid too much doom and gloom, but we still suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. This week, we're back with part two of Representation Matters. Last week, we gave a general overview of what representation is, why it's important, and who needs more of it. This week, we'll dig into the numbers behind all of that. Prepare yourselves, though. There are a lot of numbers in this episode. It might be hard to digest them all in the first listen, but as usual, everything, including our sources, will be available in the show notes. Welcome to our fireside. I think the best way to handle this part two is to just jump in where we left off. We had just closed out talking about who needs more representation, and now I think we should talk about where we should be looking for representation. Right. Uh, Obviously, I think it stands out to anybody who listened to the last episode. We've got to look, we've got to demand it in the media. One of the most significant influences on how we see each other and ourselves is the media we consume. Nielsen you know, the the company that does TV and product ratings, and a statistics generation organization called Statista. I'm assuming it's pronounced that way. I want (laughs) it to be pronounced that way, so it is now. Both estimate that the average American spends somewhere between 400 and 475 minutes per day consuming media. I feel attacked. That includes newspapers, books, video games, television, movies, social media, radio. That is half a day of opinions, perspectives, ideas, and on and on. And much of that time is is passive consumption. It's not like we're all burying our heads in media actively. We are not actively considering or thinking critically about what we're consuming we're just kind of like absorbing it and processing and storing that information via osmosis (laughs) and there's research to show that we're directly influenced by how others are portrayed in the media that we consume take for example a 2015 study done by a scholar at texas a&m sravidya ramasu Brahminian, which found that subtle exposure to admirable media from celebrities and what they called racial outgroups groups that are different than the race of the participant reduced participants negative prejudices about those groups so basically uh, they took groups of people who had negative prejudices about racial outgroups And they showed them positive media examples of celebrities from those groups 
and it reduced how negatively they felt about those groups. So what does this representation in the media look like for our various demographic groups that we talked about last week? Thankfully, there are a few reports that we can turn to that'll give us an idea of how we can see ourselves represented. One place that we can look is the 2020 Hollywood Diversity Report, which is created by UCLA. The report, which is published in two parts, focuses on 2018 and 2019 Hollywood theatrical films, and then examines the 2017-18 and 2018-19 television seasons. It looks at 453 scripted broadcast, cable, and digital platform television shows from the 2017-18 season, and 463 shows from 2018-2019, in order to document the degree to which women and people of color are present in front of and behind the camera. And the 2020 report found that more minorities than ever were cast as the main guy, right? A lead character in a scripted broadcast, cable, or television streaming series. But they were still underrepresented proportionally in many areas. They made up 24% of leads in scripted broadcast and digital series. Cable actually did pretty well, coming in at about 35%. And they made up only 27% of film lead actors and 32% of film actors overall. So when we go back and we compare that to the percentages that there are minorities in the United States, we're roughly 40%, we're underrepresented by a decent number. Women were well represented in series, with only broadcast series lagging behind in female lead characters, but in film, their representation was less impressive. They made up only 44% of film leads and 40% of overall total actors. Again, women are like 51% of the American population. So while representation for both women and minorities is growing, it may very well be slowed by the fact that many showrunners and directors and producers are still white men. In series, only somewhere between 10 and 14% of show creators are people of color, only 14% of film writers and 15% of directors are people of color. And the numbers aren't great for women either. 22 to 28% of series show creators, 17% of film writers, and 15% of film directors are women. So there's a lot of perspective that's not being brought to the table and a lot of consideration that's not being given simply because women and minorities are really underrepresented when it comes to creation and writing of these shows and films even if they do depict them more often now. Yeah. And something that's, look at how close those percentages are. 27% minorities as leads and 32% as actors overall. Yeah. I mean that (laughs) it's kind of like if the film wasn't made for a minority lead, it probably didn't have a minority actor in it. Right. Or very few. There's an interesting statistic in the discussion of that report that I was reading that basically said until, I think it was 2016 or 2017, um, the top 11% gross-wise of films did not contain, or sorry, the top grossing films did not contain a minority cast more than 11%, um, but that number has, I mean, they've blown that out of the water in the last few years. Uh, But up until (laughs) that point, the top grossing films had negligible minority representation. Thankfully, at all. one of the positives here is we're seeing representation from the LGBTQ community grow. An annual report by GLAAD, an LGBT advocacy group, 
found that representation of LGBT people as television series regulars on broadcast primetime scripted programming reached an all-time high of 10.2%. That was in the 2019 and 20 television season, which is nearly twice Gallup's estimate of the actual population. And this season, we saw Jesse James Keitel take on the first non-binary series lead role as Jerry in ABC's Big Sky. Disability representation in the media is also changing. I don't know about you, but I remember in the 1990s, it was absolutely not uncommon to see a character with a disability pop up in your favorite scripted show. The main characters would encounter them, have their perspective changed, and then go on their merry little ways as a better people. <laughs> a common, a common you know, trope. Now... Of course, we see that as tokenism, and we recognize that it's just a shadow of what real representation looks like. Those characters did not have nuance. Who they were was far less important than what they were. They just, in general, the, the, the writers just needed a different, quote-unquote, different person to stand in to force growth and change in the main character. And I'm sure... At the time, I don't really remember reactions because I was a child, but I'm sure at the time, you know, it was considered great that X actor was on the show. Like, yeah, but it probably even didn't get the fanfare that it gets now, you know, that I think about it. Right. And and it may very well have not even been an, a real actor with a real disability at that point. They may have just picked someone who oh. could act and... And yeah, put them who in pretended that. to, yeah, guarantee, guarantee, I mean, Rain Man, I, like, dude, great film, definitely just a regular dude, right, now, and I don't want to, I don't want to dog on Dustin Hoffman, though, because, like, he put in work for that role, yeah, so, going back to that conversation we had last time, is that okay, is that fine, would it be possible yeah. to make that film without him, I, or without, I just don't know. Right. All right. So thankfully, thankfully, we've moved past the, we've moved past that sort of like token X person on the show, right? To see, we've moved past that to see the characters with disability experiences as as regulars and even leads on television and movies. Um, There's not a lot. One estimate put disability representation at around 2%. Uh, But even still, there is some question as to how fully the nuance of those characters is communicated. So The Good Doctor, a scripted primetime medical drama, is one example of this conflicted perspective. The show features a doctor who lives with both autism and savant syndrome. And it's won multiple awards and much praise for, for its depiction of a person living with autism as an independent and fully functioning character. However, it has drawn criticism from many living with autism about the clean, marketable image of autism that it presents. Um, They say it glosses over many of the difficulties those living with autism face. So it's kind of like a a very uh, gift-wrapped version of it. This is autism, and isn't this person so strong for working with it? And it never really gets into the you know, this person 
has hard times sometimes and this isn't always easy and it isn't always clean and the struggles aren't always easily resolved sort of reality that people can face. Um, but it's also definitely a feel-good show. Um, I remember one of the better representations, I don't know about best, but one of the better representations of a, a disability that I saw was actually in Scrubs. Uh, which is a great show for a lot of reasons, but they had um, Michael J. Fox on it. And he wasn't a doctor with Parkinson's. <laughs> he was a doctor with OCD. Yeah, and I remember they that did a really good job both discussing how his experience with obsessive compulsive disorder strengthened him as an individual and gave him experiences to allow him to help other people. But also there were some, there was one really powerful scene, I think at the end of the episode where you see him struggling with having to wash up for a surgery. And like, there's a specific way he has to do it. And it shows the, like the reality that, you know, yeah, sure, it gave him some perspective, but it's also something that he has to, to, to wrestle with in his daily life. And there's a way that he has to do these things. Otherwise, he can't. He can't progress. And Scrubs is a comedy, but what was great about it is that I don't really think they played OCD, that the idea of that, for laughs very much. Right. I think there was, like, one way he had to step through a door. That was kind of like a recurring sort of joke but it, even that wasn't like yuck yuck look at this guy and how silly he is it was really just sort of building the character out mm -hmm. um showing like it, i think it was setting up the small struggles to highlight the big struggle that they were going to show later i don't know i just remember yeah. that that stuck with me as a as an abled quote-unquote uh person that that in particular that episode was really like, wow, that makes me pause. I thought that was cool. Yeah. Others have noted that much of the disability representation we see in the media centers on white individuals, which, again, talking about intersectionality here, can deepen the feelings of underrepresentation for people of color living with disabilities. And yeah, I've been trying to think of minority groups represented with a disability and i just can't think of one the one that comes to my mind is radio cuba gooding jr in radio but that's yeah. i've never seen that one but it was good heartwarming true story um but it makes me wonder right if it wasn't a true story if it would have been as hard, been a been, voluntary been made at all right yeah um or if they would have maybe made a story similar to that but it wouldn't have included cuba gooding jr yeah. Because they they needed a black actor to play a black character. So, yeah, it's it's hard because if you think back to, like, the good classic representations of disability on film that we feel like are respectful and nuanced and carry... Right. That was, sorry, that was something I want to say about what my, my talking about the OCD is, to me, as an able person that has not had to struggle with OCD, it felt like a good representation. I don't know if it actually was... It just felt respectful. Sorry, I want to put that caveat in there. If you, if that is something that you as have have lived that experience and you're like, wow, this is terrible, 
please let me know so right. I know how to fix my thoughts here. Right. But I thought that that was a a a well-rounded representation of the whole. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt yeah. you there, but you, tr- you, you knocked that thought loose. Well, it's true. Like, very rarely do we get these full picture perspectives of people living with disabilities. And then even more rare is to see someone living with a disability represented as being anything other than white, Rain Man, white, Peanut Butter Falcon, yeah. white, Glee, right? You've got, you got a character in a yeah. wheelchair. But and he's, he's white. Yeah, that's, I thought about that too. Oh, there's a guy in a wheelchair. He's a, a white kid. And for a show that did such a a really good job with representation of of a lot of these other groups, even still you can almost see, I'm not not accusing Ryan Murphy of tokenism, right, in Glee, but you can almost see how they may have pulled this one in over here and this one in over there and this one in over here without necessarily considering the layers of -hmm. intersectionality. Granted, we weren't talking a whole lot about intersectionality in the early 2000s. Right. And the mid-2000s. The like we, mid-2000s. I was going to say, it wasn't... Yeah. Wasn't it wasn't early. Ago, was I, it? I'm showing my age here. <laughs> okay. No, it would have been mid-2000s. 19, 1980 was 20 years ago still, so... Exactly. <laughs> uh, people who were born in 2002 can vote, so I'm... Ugh. And we are grateful for you if you're listening. So grateful. You had such mm. a powerful impact on this election. But I still have a hard time believing that you exist. You're it's not personal. <laughs> it's just me showing. You're, you're adults, but. It's just me showing my limited Listen, if perspective. If we accept that you are real, it means we have to accept our own mortality. Correct. And that's just not going to happen because this is all escapism for us. So, exactly. moving on. <laughs> moving along. Moving along. We spent a lot of time talking about representation in the classroom in our episode on systemic racism in education, but I do want to go back and repeat some of the most important takeaways from that part of the episode, you know, here. Bottom line, kids in educational environments where their teachers and administrators represent them have better educational outcomes. We're not going to spend a ton of time talking about uh, like representation for women in the classroom. Because we know that women are actually overrepresented. Something like 76% of elementary and secondary education teachers are women. 54% of public school principals are women. So we don't have a whole lot to talk about as far as underrepresentation in the classroom. We could talk about overrepresentation and how we could stand to see much more male representation in the classroom. Um, mm. That's, I mean, that's just a fact. Mm. But what I do want to talk about is the number of women of color or even men of color in the classroom, because that's significantly lower. And that's a problem because being assigned to a same same race teacher is linked with much more positive teacher perceptions of students, as well as student outcomes like attendance, disciplinary infractions, assignment to gifted and talented programs and student achievement. Even still... Right? We know all of that stuff about how representation of race in the classroom matters. And even still, black teachers only make up 7% of our teaching force. Hispanic teachers only make up 8%. Asian American teachers only make up 2%. Half a percent are Native American. And actually, that number is the most 
representative of the native population in it's the most representative of that group yeah in across all of these numbers yeah but then we see that representation fall even lower when we look at school administration um again you can find all of that race focused information in episode three in systemic racism in education um we covered it in super duper detail there but race and and sex is not the only kind of representation that we need in the classroom. I want to take a few minutes to talk about LGBTQ representation in the classroom simply because this feels so heavy. It feels so important. Um, while we don't know exact numbers or percentages of LGBTQ students in our schools, and we may never know the real exact numbers, there's a lot of research right now that indicates that these students are struggling, especially in school settings. The Trevor Project reports that LGBTQ youth are almost five times as likely to have attempted suicide compared to heterosexual youth. StopBullying.gov reports that in 2017, 33% of um, openly LGBTQ students said that they were verbally harassed on school campuses and 27% were cyberbullied. The CDC tells us that LGBTQ students, when compared with heterosexual students, were 140% more likely to miss school. And we know that this kind of absenteeism causes problems with educational outcomes as well. GLSEN, which is... Um, Another advocacy group and reporting group for gay and lesbian students reported in 2014 that LGBTQ students who experienced higher levels of victimization based on their sexual orientation had lower grade point averages than students who were less often harassed, like 2.8 compared to a 3.3 GPA. And that kind of feels like common sense, um, but also I feel like we need to say that kind of stuff out loud, right? Like these kids who are already in a place where they're struggling with the full expression of who they are as themselves, add this layer to it. And because we don't have appropriate levels of representation, because we haven't reached that level of acceptance, these students are experiencing poor outcomes based on, on how they're treated. One college freshman in an article by Ed D. Shanna Peoples, she's a, a, a researcher, noted that it's important to have a gay teacher because when you're in school, most of the adults you're interacting with in a serious way are your teachers. And they're the ones showing you the worlds that you could inhabit. Um, again, we don't, we don't have a whole lot of numbers about how many LGBTQ teachers we have in our classrooms, uh, but that's, that's for a very good reason, I would imagine, right? There's still that, that threat level like we talked about on the last episode that feeling of, if I acknowledge this publicly, things may not be okay for me. 39% um, of people who responded to a Harris Poll study on LGBTQ acceptance said that they would be uncomfortable with their child receiving a school lesson on LGBTQ history. And 32% said that they would be uncomfortable with their child being placed with an openly LGBTQ teacher. Um, I actually have kind of a little bit of a personal story about that. My um, my oldest was getting ready to go into fifth grade, and we go to the same church as uh, one of the teachers from that school in a different grade. 
And she came up to us one day and said, you know, how's, uh, how's Soph liking her teacher? And I won't say his name because that's, you know, privacy and all that. And we said, oh, well, he's, you know, he's fantastic. Uh, we enjoy him very much. He's a great teacher. Soph has always done well with male teachers, that kind of stuff. And, uh, and she said, oh, well, I was just interested because, you know, I've, uh, I've heard some stuff. And we we're like, what, what kind of stuff could you possibly have heard? You know, we just kind of like, yeah, she's like, yeah, you know, I've, I've heard from some parents that they're just not, they're not really comfortable with, with their kid being in his classroom. And obviously, like, no specifics were said. She didn't say anything out loud. And we then spent like the next several weeks trying to figure out what on earth she might have been talking about, because right. Soph's fifth grade teacher was like one of the best teachers we have ever encountered. I mean, he was absolutely fantastic, incredible teacher. Yeah. But the only bills. thing that we could possibly come up with was that there may have been a perception that he had uh, an LGBTQ identity, right? There, nothing blatant ever said, but like they just carried that stigma of like, hey, you might you might just want to be careful. Um, so yeah, we we have this whole generation of students more. More Gen Z and millennials are identifying as LGBTQ as any other generation, obviously, uh, because they're growing up in a time when it is gradually becoming slightly more acceptable to have that as an identity. And yet they exist in a situation where it's not necessarily safe for them to have educators interacting with them on a daily basis who represent these identities. Like uh, that, that one just really feels like a punch to my gut. Yeah. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> right? Like. Uh, that, that whole interaction. Like, as a parent, you, hearing a, a, another teacher being like, some kids aren't comfortable in his class had to have been like, whoa, why? Yeah. And then. Mm. 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 Mm-hmm. Mm. I have a whole thing about the church and how it treats lgbtq people and oh yeah it's a it's a rant that i don't <clears throat> i don't think we're supposed to be making these episodes shorter so yeah. we don't have mm-hmm. time for this <laughs> but fair ooh. that's very fair <sighs> one day though one day we'll rant Someday. about that Just, that'll be good mm-hmm. Maybe uh maybe if we ever decide to do a Patreon and we do Patreon supporter content, we'll just right for, just be for your ten dollar ten dollar donation, you get a rant. <laughs> you get, <laughs> you get access it. to our our rant catalog. <laughs> yes, awesome. if you're ever having a bad day and you want to hear somebody complain about something, right? Oh man. Okay, and and things get really really messy when we try to talk about disability representation in schools. I was shocked to find out that there is no organization that I could find, that anybody could find, that tracks the number of K-12 educators with disabilities. Like, literally, I could not turn up one estimate, one statistic on this. How on earth are our students with disabilities supposed to feel seen in their classrooms where their authority figures don't look like them? Like, I was able to find some personal stories about teachers living with disabilities in the classroom, but a few anecdotes, they don't get us very far when it comes to actual representation. Like, how is there nobody tracking this? Please, somebody tell me that I'm wrong. Tell me that all of my hours of research, I could not turn this up and it's somewhere easy and I can just admit that I missed a big one. (laughs) I would much rather 
feel stupid than this not be a thing be that we're yeah. that we're following. Ugh. Right. I, I mean, and, and there there aren't even. I mean, according according to my research and according to researchers who are focusing on this, there are not even good resources for educators with disabilities who are hoping to enter the teaching field. Um, Clayton Keller, who's a co-author of a book called Enhancing Diversity, Educators with Disabilities, notes that one of the things that gets talked about a lot in non-disability diversity is, are there images of people like me? Are there people like me in positions of responsibility? Keller says, if kids with disabilities don't see people with disabilities in positions of responsibility, will they ever think that they'll be able to do those things? Like, and that's the core of representation right there. Another area outside of our classrooms that we need to look for representation that ties into that sort of positions of authority, the, the people at the top, if you will, um, where we need representation is it's our, our offices, our, our corporate suites, the C-suites, which is a term I just learned about. <laughs> it's no secret that corporate America has, has long been dominated by white males and representation of women and minorities in positions above the typing pool or janitorial staff has long been an issue of public discussion. But how far have we come since this actually became a hot button issue? So let's start with the baseline. White males aged uh, 15 to 65, which is what is defined as the general working age. They make up around 25% of the overall U.S. population. According to McKinsey's Women in the Workplace study, which, like most of the demographic studies we discuss uses a statistically significant representative sample to draw conclusions about the American corporate population as a whole. It uses enough people so we can actually know what it's like. According to that study, white men are still very well represented in the corporate world. They make up 35% of the entry-level workforce, 44% of the first-level managers, 59% of the senior vice presidents, level positions, and 66% of the C-suite workers are chief accounting officers or chief financial officers, chief officer officers. Um, What is a COO? Operations. Chief operations officer. So keep those numbers in mind as we look at other groups. According to that same study, white women are the next most represented group Women aged 15 to 65 make up 22% of the total population, as opposed to 25% of the males. And according to the study, they make up 29% of the entry-level workers, 26% of managers, 23% of the senior vice presidents, and only 19% of the C-suite. Huh. 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 I see a pattern. As, you know, as, I was, as I was looking at these statistics, it's, it was like, oh, look, uh, the farther up the responsibility chain you go, the more white dudes there are. And you just totally flip that on its head. The farther up the responsibility ladder you go, the fewer white females there are. Or actually... Spoiler. W- yeah, just women. Oh, sorry. Yeah, let me... Yeah. Watch out. No, spoiler. So... For, like, I'm 
See if you can find a pattern here, dear listeners. Yeah. So, One of these things is not like the other ones. The difference between white men and women in general in entry-level positions isn't super drastic, 29 as opposed to 35, which is great. But there's this thing that happens in the space between entry-level and low-level management. So the first two tiers. And in the study, they called it the broken rung on the corporate ladder. For every 100 men promoted to manager, only 85 women were promoted. And things get even more noticeable for women of color. And uh, let's just take a look at that. <sighs> Folks of color, they fill 18% of entry-level positions. That's both men and women. And when we get to managerial positions, men hold steady at 18%, so they don't drop off. But... Oh, no, they, they double, roughly. When we get to managerial positions, men hold steady at 18%, but women of color drop to 12% of managerial positions. And this is where the broken rung problem really gets noticeable. For every 100 men promoted to manager, only 58 black women and 71 uh, Latinas see promotions. When we get to the senior vice president level, we see men of color occupy 13% of the positions and women of color drop to 5%. And then for the C-suite, men of color are 12% of the population, but only 3% are women of color. So 66% of the C-suite positions are filled by white men and 3% by women of color. Yeah. When it comes to the way our offices work, white men are the only group that grow in percentage of population as you move up the corporate ladder. Everybody else drops. Um, which, again, shouldn't be surprising, but still feels a bit like a slap in the face. But I mean, these results are not unique to Hold the women on. in the workplace study. We are breaking this mold. Robin is technically the majority owner of our little company here. You. <laughs> that is true. You are at the top of the corporate ladder between the two of us. That is true. <laughs> that is true. Our, our non. <laughs> and I, I am lucky enough to have held titles at, with director in the name, um, which not, not very many women of color are are able to do so i I am blessed in having been able to do that um in the past but see in case in case you are wondering if perhaps this is just reflective of that one study no these results results are, are not in any way unique to this women in the workplace study according to the united states equal opportunity employment commission Black professionals in 2018 held just 3.3% of all executive or senior leadership roles within two reporting levels of the CEO. Less than 1% of Fortune 500 CEOs are black. And over the past two decades, there have only been 17 black CEOs in total in those Fortune 500 companies. And of those, only one has been a woman, Ursula Burns, who ran Xerox from 2009 to 2016. I knew that. I knew that. I don't know why I knew that. I was watching a movie, and the one of the one of the characters was Ursula Burns. I just can't remember which movie it nice. was. Sorry, just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. Hey, that's good. <laughs> Representation matters. A Stanford report 
uh, examined the 2020 corporate governance of Fortune 100 companies, which is basically like corporate governance is your whole C-suite, everybody from the CEO to your, uh, what do they call them, profit leaders, um, your executive leadership. And they looked at these Fortune 100 companies and they found pretty much the same thing. There were 101 CEOs in there, which basically just means that there was turnover at one point. Um, 85 of those CEOs were white. Uh, the other races were represented at somewhere like three to five total people each. Uh, 94 of those CEOs were male. 79 of those 94 were white. Um, chief financial officers, there were 96 of them. 92 of them were white. 83 of them were male. And then there were 13 female, and 12 of those females were white. One of them was, <laughs> was Asian. The most diversity in corporate governance was found at Chief Human Resources Officer, actually. There were 80 of those total studied. 66 of them were white, um, and 23 of them were male, which means that 57 of them were female. Um, but it's really important to note that this is one executive position with essentially no path to CEO and very little controlling power in an organization. Most of the power in an organization is held at CEO, CFO, Chief Financial Officer, and Chief Operating Officer. Um, and then you have things like Chief Human Resources Officer and Chief Communications Officer. Chief Security that are Officer. Mostly, right. That are, are mostly considered um, soft skills. And it is far more common to find people of color and women in those positions um, well, primarily because the authority structure in the United States has always gone to white men, but I digress. I don't know if that's digression. That's literally the topic that we're talking about. That's fair. You nailed it. That's You're fair. cool. <laughs> On the head. And the LGBTQ community is also underrepresented in the workplace. Academic estimates place the number of LGBTQ women at about 5.1% and men at 3.9%. Again, these are all super speculative numbers. The best, that researchers, the best that researchers can do. Um, however, their representation in the corporate world falls short of these numbers, we think. Um, right? To the like best it's, of it's our so knowledge. Yeah. Know. No, the, it's so hard to know. It's so hard to know. The real trick will be actually our LGBTQ community is overrepresented everywhere and they've just been keeping it quiet from us. And it's part of the Dude. liberal plan to take over the world with lizard people, man. What? Sorry. Lizard people. You got into Dude, that. Dude, I, I would love for that to be like the bombshell. Right. They're just like, secret. surprise, we've been running everything. Secret gaze at the awesome. top. <laughs> I can see the headlines now. Oh, my gosh. Oh, God. Every New York Post article ever. <laughs> oh, head lesbian in charge, making decisions about your children at school. Oh my gosh. Thank God, somebody with some reason. Actually, that would. No. That's probably a headline somewhere. Oh no. It probably is. It probably is. Okay, back to numbers. <laughs> yeah, back. Numbers, numbers, business numbers. According to the best estimates that could be found, LGBTQ women make up about 2.3% of entry level positions. That drops to 1.6% at manager, and that has dropped to 0.6% at senior vice president or C-suite level. Men coming in just a little bit stronger, 3.1% at entry-level positions. Uh, that holds pretty steady until a dip at vice president to 1.9%. 
And then that comes back up again at the senior vice president or C-suite level to 2.9%, um, which is actually pretty good. And and I'll get there in just a second. That kind of matches the the general upward representation trajectory, aside from the, the dip at VP. Right. And and we don't like again, since we don't have breakouts of of the intersectionality between LGBTQ and people of color. Right. Um, right. Like we can't draw straight comparisons there, but we can get some sort of an idea. Yeah. Um, but again, this is like this is one important place where intersectionality plays a significant role. LGBTQ women of color are the most likely to report being the only person of their gender, color, and or sexual identity in any given room at work, right? Mm -hmm. They're most likely to report being an only. But it goes further than the statistics on who's in what job. A Glassdoor survey conducted by the Harris Poll um, showed that more than half, so 53% of LGBTQ employees reported that they have experienced or witnessed anti-LGBTQ comments by their coworkers. Mm -hmm. People who identify as trans in the research done by McKinsey were roughly the same age as the cisgender people that were included, but they were much more likely to be in entry-level positions than cisgender people. They were also less likely to have management or evaluation or hiring responsibilities, and they were more likely to view their gender or sexual orientation as a barrier to their advancement. Again, this kind of this kind of research can't predict causality, right? We can't say for sure that their identity is a barrier to their advancement, but we can say that they perceive it as such, mm-hmm. which generally has the same effect. That perception has the same effect on advancement as does actual obstacles. Right. Hmm. Again, good news though. LGBTQ representation in the corporate world has benefited significantly recently from the work of openly LGBTQ corporate leaders like Tim Cook at Apple, like Jim Fitterling at Dow Chemical, and Beth Ford at Land O'Lakes. While we know that having one high-profile representation does not make full representation, it doesn't equal everything, and we can talk more about that when we get to tokenism, This is at least one indicator that tolerance in this space is increasing and it provides an opportunity for activism from the top. Speaking of activism, there's actually legislative work that's being done to further this representation in the workplace for many groups. The Improving Corporate Governance Through Diversity Act of 2019, introduced by Representative Gregory Meeks from New York, would require public companies to publish data annually in their proxy statements on the racial, ethnic, and gender configuration of their boards, their nominee slates, and their executive officers. When he was interviewed about it, Meeks said, My legislation in Congress would require companies to disclose publicly whether those top positions include women, people of color, and veterans. Not only is transparency good for the public, it's good for investors looking to determine which companies are recognizing the value diversity brings to corporate decision making. Uh, That legislation passed the House vote in November of 2019 and was referred to the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. Hmm. Um, And then, of course, Congress.gov has no more information on it because it's probably sitting on somebody's desk for review somewhere. Somebody. Uh, But hey, at least it's in process. Who could that be? Who has been keeping legislation on his desk for the past 
X number of years because he doesn't want it to pass because it might make a opposing political party look good. Sorry. Woo, tangent. Oh, man. That's a whole other topic. Let's go. California Assembly Bill. That's a whole other topic. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. More legislation. California Assembly Bill 979 actually directs corporations to appoint leaders from underrepresented communities defined as people who identify as Black, Latino, Native American, Asian American, Pacific Islander, Native Hawaiian, or Native Alaskan. Um, but companies can also comply with that law by appointing directors who self-identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. Uh, the number of required appointees varies based on the size of the board. Um, and those companies that do not comply with this legislation face fines in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, now, there's a whole other host of problems with actually legislating diversity in privately held companies, right? There is another whole host of issues and we definitely do not have time to work through those right now. But the point is that there is work being done on the subject of representation in the workplace. Great. That's good. Another another type of authority figure is is our the one I'm going to focus on next rather is 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 our police force. And it's no secret to the average American citizen that our police force is a source of tension within our communities. As a former law enforcement officer, I can tell you I've experienced that tension firsthand. It sucks. I am generally a guy who likes to be trusted. I'm sure everybody is. Uh, But when you put on the uniform, things change. The trust, in my experience, I felt like people felt more wary around me than trusting. That was a wild experience. And it's honestly heartbreaking. It's depressing. Our police forces should be a source of comfort for us. Instead, we have jacked them up into the I'm here to kick but mentality and a police presence isn't really comforting anymore to large swaths of our population. It's frustrating for the police at best and it certainly heightens the tension on the job. At worst, it leads to so many of the crises we've seen, crises that we have seen in the past, I don't know, name uh, a number in that many years. Now, there are a lot of reasons for this, and our police forces, they're definitely not blameless victims um, in this long-term shift of perception, right? It's not like society moved away from our police force. There has been a divergence. And and this episode really isn't the the the, the session to get into that, <laughs> but we do want to talk a little bit about one of the hypothesized problems in our police agencies, which is lack of diversity, this lack of representation on the police force. Now, as of 2018, there were roughly 800,000 police officers of varying types in the United States. Of that population, roughly 85.3% are male and 65.5% are white. And making meaning that the largest majority of our police force are white males. And we, we identified earlier 35%, give or take, 
of the population at large is a white male. So we are nearly double that uh, represented on our police force. 12.8% of our police force are black, which that actually isn't super far out of whack uh, as it seems. Like it's super low, you know, only 13% of our police force being black, but 13.4% of our general population are black. So that's right. almost within like the same exact range. It's it's the fact that 60% of the general population is white and of that only 35% of them are male and we still have 65.5% of our police force being white. It really only leaves room for roughly 21% of our police force to be made or to 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 represent the rest of the population of the U.S., you know, which is a lot of people. Um, and, and just like finding information in all of these other people groups, finding or all these other groups, finding information about um, LGBTQ representation in the police force is nigh impossible. I couldn't find anything that I actually liked the source for. So, yeah. I don't, I can't give you a number in this instance. I can tell you, I bet you it's really, really small, really small. This is one of those, it's one of those positions that you don't, it doesn't attract a lot of, I shouldn't say it doesn't attract a lot of, of, of people from that population. It does not welcome them. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's very fair. Now, this is only one example of authority figures overall at large in the U.S. that we that we all kind of encounter, but that's why I think that we can use it as a stand-in for most of our other authority figures, things like like judges and religious leaders and our commerce uh, lead giants, you know, people like that. They're all figures of authority, but specifically in our police, it, I think, is a microcosm of the bigger problem uh, because they cast such a long shadow in the, U- in the U.S. psyche, Right. In a perfect world, it probably wouldn't matter if our representation was off a few points here or there. But it's so important in our world right now. We don't live in a perfect world. And unfortunately, proportions don't speak to distribution either. So even though our African-American male, our black male, or sorry, no, not black male, just black, 12.8% representation in the police force is almost 13%, which is roughly equivalent to the uh, black population. It, it, It doesn't mean that those officers are going to be working in precincts that, that need black representation the most. Right. So, that's kind of how we ended up with the situation that occurred in Ferguson, Missouri in 2000 and what was that? That's 14. The vast majority of the police force was white. 67% of the population in Ferguson was black in 2014. And that's when Michael Brown was shot. And this caused massive protests throughout the area. Only three, not 3%, only three police officers were black in Ferguson at that time. We had a huge disconnect between the population and their representation in a force that was allegedly there for their own for their own good to to be there 
shepherds. Their sheepdog is the, the phrase cops love. Now, we can't say that a different police force composition would have changed anything. We can't. We don't know. But the temptation to believe that is certainly strong. And this is all opinion, but when you look at data that shows that 86% of traffic stops and 92% of all arrests in the city were of black residents, it makes you wonder. The only two possible explanations that I can think of for such a disparity are either that black folks commit more crime than whites, or the police think that's true and perform their jobs according to that bias. We'll talk about that more later. This perception is generally espoused in the form of that racist dog whistle, that 15% of the population committing 50% of the crimes BS, which, as we've discussed, is completely ignoring context and things like income inequality and racial and ethnic groups, distribution and geography and intergenerational poverty and systemic issues. Anyway, I could go on. That dumb quote completely ignores context, and it is a prime example of how statistics without context are useless. Anyway, the point of everything that I'm saying right now being... <laughs> There is an argument to be made about the importance of a police force reflecting the population they are sworn to protect. Now, I will be the first to admit that there is a lot that I don't understand about cultures outside of my own. From simple things like how respect is shown to more complex and nuanced things like interactions between tone and word choice and posture. Sometimes I'm just an awkward turtle. Okay, especially when I'm interacting with cultures outside my own. Like, if I enter a room and there are people in there that I don't, like, I don't see a commonality immediately with, who oh boy. And it's not because I think anything, you know, necessarily negative or positive or inherent about the group. It's just that I, I just am so out of my own element, right? And I can't imagine... That happens to me so rarely. I can't imagine what that would feel like if it happened to you daily, which is what being a minority in America is. is that's life. I don't, I don't mean to be that way, obviously, but I just, I have such little experience outside of the cultures that were present in Southwest Missouri when I was growing up. Northern Virginia, when I moved here, was eye-opening. In a great way, but holy cow, talk about culture shock. Because I, I look around and I see so many people that aren't the people that I grew up with. And that's great. It makes me stretch and become a better person because I have to, I get to, I don't have to, I get to experience all of these other groups and what is important to them and how they act and communicate and are. But I would probably be a terrible police officer for Northern Virginia right now, for places that didn't have the same culture that I'm used to. New York City, I'd be toast because I don't understand the culture there. I was visiting once and I got yelled at for holding the door for someone going into a shop, okay? That's what I know about the culture there. Where I'm from, you get yelled at for not holding the door. I did it, I got yelled at for holding the door. Don't get it. 
how much worse would that awkwardness be if I were in a city where I was the minority, like in Ferguson, right? And how much more dangerous is that awkwardness? I lack the basic ability to communicate in the same way as the citizenry in that case, at least for a while until I, I've acclimated to it and, and understand it. But that could be months, that could be years. So how, how dangerous is that? That is literally just asking for conflict. Without yeah. Yeah. more of our police force looking like the cities that they patrol, we will always be setting ourselves up for conflict. And Absolutely. Like we, we have to, I don't know, I feel like, like there's so there's such a little impetus for us to learn those things about those groups that we may not understand that we may not come into contact with as much you're you're relying on your police officers to be those kind of people who go out of their way to learn mm. about the communities that they're, they're supposed to be protecting and serving and i i just feel like that's too much of an ask i feel like it would be much more appropriate to have those officers actually represent the communities that they're that they're in. Right. Well, and especially since so much of modern policing doesn't involve going out on the beat. You're not out yeah. walking the streets so much anymore. You're cruising, you're patrolling, sure, but just getting out and walking around is not really I can't think of a time I've ever seen a police officer in Springfield, right? Just right. walking around doing their job. Right. They're never just doing their job by walking around. They're always getting something and then going back to their cruiser. So. Yeah. And that's obviously anecdotal. So don't take that to the bank, but. Right. An observation, an observation. But yeah. it goes up beyond just our, our police and our local police. I mean, this sort of problem goes all the way up into our government. Yeah. So, I mean, while we're on the subject of authority, like, that is kind of the most ultimate authority that most of us are subject to in the United States is that's our federal government. And if we think about our current and historical office holders without much effort, you will quickly realize that the group is very low in melanin and very high in testosterone. <laughs> I mean, it just that's just what it is. Like, you watch these... Set, especially in, during this last election season, uh, when there were all of the publicized Senate trials and and the the discussions of oh what's gosh. going on with the election, it very quickly became obvious that much of the the work being done in the United States federal government is done by old white men. Um, out of the forty four individuals who have <laughs> served as president of the United States. Uh, yes, Trump is the 45th president, but because Grover Cleveland served two non-consecutive terms, he gets counted twice, which is kind of weird. That's the thing you know now. All of them are male, and all but one of them are white. This is not surprising to anyone, but just hang in there. Of the 541 members of Congress, okay, that's another rabbit trail here. I know we just spent an episode talking about the 538 members of Congress with respect to the election and how that works. But what you need to know is that there are actually a maximum of 538 voting members of Congress and the remaining members are non-voting members and they represent like 
Washington, D.C. and the U.S. territories. And we'll get back on track now. Right. Of the 541 members of the 116th Congress, our current Congress, the average age of members of the House at the beginning of the 116th Congress was 57.6 years. In our Senate, it was 62.9 years. By comparison, the average age of the U.S. citizen in 2019 was 38.2 years old. Wow. The overwhelming majority, 96% of members of Congress have a college education, whereas only 36% of the general population of the U.S. over the age of 25 has a bachelor's degree or higher. On the, on the subject of like religion, most members identify as Christians, and the collective majority of these affiliate with a Protestant, Protestant denomination. So most are Christians. Of those, most of them are Protestant. Roman Catholics account for the largest single religious denomination, and numerous other affiliations are represented, including Jewish, Mormon, Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, Greek, Orthodox, Pentecostal Christian, Unitarian Universalist, and Adventist. Actually, I want to know who the Buddhist in Congress is. Uh, Perhaps (laughs) not surprisingly, this might actually be the best distribution of representation in Congress because of how like dominant Christianity is in our culture and, and yeah. as the, the nation's religion is something like 70 ish percent of the population claims some form of Christianity, um, which blew my mind. I didn't think it was that high, but it's, it's weird. It's kind of been on the dink decline for a long time. So I don't know how long that information will be accurate. Don't, don't take that to the bank. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting though. Yeah. A record 131 women serve in the 116th Congress, 105 in the House, including three delegates and the resident commissioner, and 26 in the Senate. But that's still only 24% of the population of Congress, compared to roughly 52% of the general population identifying as female. There are 53 African-American members in the House and three in the Senate. Uh, a note here, the official like tally that I we pulled these numbers from designated African American as the the race we've been saying black for the majority of this right. for this purpose it is the same I think it's always the same but that is just the the uh, the word switch there I'm using the original wording from the the survey here the House number includes two delegates so out of the three two of those are delegates. So that is roughly 10.1% of the population of Congress compared to 13.4% of the general United States population. So it's not, too bad. Not, not too bad. Still needs to be better, but not, I mean, definitely not the most offensive <laughs> disparity. Correct. There are 51 Hispanic or Latinx members, uh, which is a record number serving. There are 46 in the House, including two delegates and the resident commissioner. And five in the Senate. That's 9.4% compared to 18.5% in the general population. So that's an underrepresentation by about half. Yeah. And then uh, there are 20 members, 14 representatives, three delegates, three senators, who are combined Asian Americans, Indian Americans, or Pacific Islander Americans. <laughs> Indian Americans meaning from India, not, not yes. first peoples or first nations. So this is also a record number. It's still only 3.7% of the congressional population. And in our general population, those groups make up 6.1% of the population. 
And then we do have a record. Again, I hate, we keep saying record and these numbers just so sad. So small. Yeah. I'm like, it stops me here. But a record for American Indians, Native Americans um, serve in the House. That's a whopping 0.7% compared to the 1.3% of the general population. Again, both of those numbers are small, but that's an underrepresentation of about half. Yeah. So basically from Latinx to Native Americans, those three bullet points, Latinx, Asian Americans, Indian Americans, Pacific Islander Americans, uh, American Indians, which does include that, that includes both the First Nations uh, in the con- the contiguous United States, as well as the Northern tribes uh, in um, Alaska. Um, they're all repre- underrepresented by half. Sigh. Big sigh. So, I, I, listen, we understand that was a big block of statistics. It is way easier for us to read it than it is to listen to for most people. So we get it. Again, it True will story. be published. You can look at all of that up to help kind of absorb what that actually means. Um, but we did that for a reason. Um, we, we want you to think about those numbers, the ones that you can remember. Our Congress does not represent our people. Now, there are some of them, it's more acceptable. I can accept them being more, being disproportionately educated, more educated, or disproportionately older. There are arguments to be made for the benefits of experience and schooling and that sort of thing. I get that, we get that, but there are also arguments against it. And I can, I honestly can't think of a good reason for every single minority group being that severely underrepresented at the top of our government. I don't even, we, we don't have the time to get into our local governmental breakdown uh, because I'm pretty sure that would be a whole series by itself. I just can't, I can't think of any good that would come of having so little diversity and representation at the top. And I really, like, I racked my brain. Like, is there some benefit to this homogeneity? The whole point of this episode is we really don't think there are or this session, but I, even even actively trying to think of it, I couldn't think of any argument that couldn't easily be disproved without even like actually putting effort into it. Um, they're all just ridiculous on the face, and this this doesn't get. We we're not even talking about things now like average wealth of our leadership, um, which I didn't look up because that was we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but. I know, like, it is way out of whack. Our Congress is way wealthier, as a rule, than the American population. And, again, it's just one more thing where we, the general population, are not being represented accurately in our leadership, the people who are making the rules for us to follow. Right, like, these are the people who are making our laws, And how can we expect solid criminal justice reform if most of our lawmakers have only ever experienced the criminal justice system from one frame of reference? And yes, I may actually in this moment be making the case for formerly incarcerated individuals to have a a point in in our lawmaking process. That's representation, right? Or how can we expect meaningful, full bodied healthcare reform or education reform 
How can any of the laws passed that impact our day-to-day lives take into consideration the vast disparities in my experience versus John's experience versus your experience? Representation doesn't just mean that we get art that we can relate to or education that makes sense to us. It means that we get government that actually serves all of our needs. And if you want to understand why our government can be so dysfunctional, I mean, this is a pretty solid place to start. Couldn't have said it better myself. We mentioned wealth and how it's not represented in Congress. Just from a, in a from a broader perspective, our representations of wealth in our society are also disproportionately white dudes, you know? Yeah. Um, and the, the representations of wealth that we do have from minority communities are kind of shoehorned into like two different areas. They're either entertainment in the form of sports or music. I mean, even movies has a very a much smaller, as we talked about earlier, the representation there is very small. So the number of black actors, people of color, just black actors, like I can think of Idris Elba and Will mm-hmm. Smith and... Well, basically, well, the entire cast of Bad Boys. But <laughs> Forrest Whitaker... Half of which is and, Will Smith. Hmm? <laughs> so half of which is Will Smith. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know. Well, that's what made me think of that whole movie. I was like, well, that actually has a lot right. of... That's, that's a great movie for representation. Um, but, you know, like... Can you... There, there aren't... Like, I could probably count on my hands, maybe my feet the total number of of actors that are black that are also an image of wealth, right? Yeah. Yeah, like this is, you know, we, we wanted to discuss this and I we put it in the notes here to talk about, but also like I think at some point we're going to have to just really break down our perceptions of wealth as a whole separate topic because in getting ready for the episode, we were talking through like, Okay, let's let's come up with some examples of wealthy people of color without like googling it, right? Right. Um, and all we could come up with were celebrities. Like I could not think of a single example of a person of color who was wealthy and not a celebrity. Like now that I'm thinking about it, maybe we can do the CEO of Google and right and Xerox. And then Xerox. But no, we know ste- that, right? Yeah, we- and, but she stepped down, I think. I, I don't know if she's still right. there anymore. And honestly, right. we... And we're, we're drawing the assumption that she's yeah. she's wealthy. And <laughs> But also, like, how many people knew about her before we said her name here? Obviously, we didn't make right. her you know, famous or anything. But like of the people listening to this podcast, how many of you honestly knew about her before we, we brought her up? Even I had forgotten right. that I had heard the name before. Right. And we have this kind of really interesting dichotomy where in that we have we have white people who are basically famous for being wealthy. Mm-hmm. You got Richard Branson, you got Warren Buffett, you got uh, Bill Gates. Like you got all these people who are the Kardashians. Hey, wait a like, minute. Somebody's going to somebody's going to yell at you. They're not white. <laughs> they are though. I don't They fall they into that Yeah, but doesn't that fall into the category of like Eastern European 
Ooh. being considered white? I can feel my Armenian friend smacking me over my head right now saying no. It doesn't like because I, I legitimately I genuinely don't know. I have to say that's one culture that I have had almost no exposure to. Yeah, I wouldn't say I wouldn't I would say that they definitely they qualify as, as a as a population of color. But the problem is that there is a much like Hispanic covers a wide range of, of tones. I would say I think there are that is a similar situation with uh, that that population group. So. Gotcha. And that, well, believe me, okay. so I know that if I have said something wrong there, I'm going to get an earful. So. Well, you can just blame it on me. <laughs> because there we are. There is a Darth of Armenian culture here in Southwest Missouri. That, that's um, true. <laughs> yeah. It's actually really, it's a fascinating culture. I don't know nearly enough about it. Um but okay, so so if we're gonna leave the, the Kardashians out, let's go with the Hiltons, right? Paris Hilton. I'm just gonna say, it apparently is a point of question among Armenians themselves because according to the Armenian Weekly, which I just googled, there is a question about whether or not Armenians are white. <laughs> so. Okay, okay, and I would venture a guess that it's like very many other countries in the world where you could probably be Armenian and white and Armenian and not white. Yeah, yeah. Right, like um, that, that's like we can't make the assumption that everybody with with ancestry from a particular country has uh, shared Certain. like genealogical ancestry. Right, right. Um, but would... certainly the Kardashians are white passing. Okay, okay. And the Jenners are are white passing. If you did not know that they were of a of, of Armenian descent, you would not necessarily guess it. And that's probably, you know, there's probably a lot to do with the plastic surgery there too. But for example, like we have, we have a lot of, of people who we know of because they are wealthy. And then we have people of color who are wealthy because they are well known. Yeah. And, and I don't see, like, I, I can't think of a single example of the flip of that, where we have a person of color who everyone knows because they are so wealthy. Yeah. Yeah. No, but like if we if we go back and we think about the depictions of wealth that we see and we look at the groups of people that we have talked about needing more representation, it's pretty easy to see that that falls apart quickly. Yeah. Right? We don't have any strong images of wealth and power that are people with disabilities. We don't have very many strong images of wealth and power that are LGBTQ individuals. Yeah. Like things start to fall apart once you get outside of that that very narrow dynamic that has always created power and authority in the United States. Yeah. It makes me wonder, Stephen was Stephen Hawking considered a person of power? He's the only sort of I would like, say authority, but I don't know power. Yeah. Authority. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. Authority but not power. Because it's the literally the only like disabled person that i could think of that is or differently abled whatever the uh, uh, what is the appropriate term there differently abled person that i can think of that has some sort of of massive global reach before he died right you know um 
So, right, we have miserably failed at our goal of making two short episodes. We are now in the territory of three full-length episodes. Uh, (laughs) Things happen sometimes. So I'm going to, I think, I don't know, I feel like we've had a pretty fulsome discussion on why representation is important and why, you know, we have to consider representation from the top down and across all of the very broad uh, experiences that are our society that make us up. Yeah, I don't think we missed anything. Right. I I feel like I think we managed to cover. <laughs> if we all did, of it. let us know. You know how you can oh, let us know. Oh, smooth transition. That's right. Wasn't that good? Through one of the many ways yes. to contact us. If you enjoyed our episode, if you have any of our episodes, if you or if any of our episodes so far have left you with questions or uh, you just loved them or anything, we would love if you support us in one of a few ways or two or every of a few ways. If <laughs> if your podcast listening platform allows you to leave us a review, please, please, please consider just doing that. It seems daunting, but we make it super duper easy for you. You can find a, a link tree on our social media page. It will guide you through step-by-step step how to leave a review on your platform. Okay, just click on that. It'll pop up, you know, rate this podcast. Um, Your review will help others discover our podcast and show um, the platforms that we are on, which I think is literally all of them at this point in time. Yeah. That we are providing valuable content in our episodes. I mentioned our social media page. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Fireside Breakdowns. Uh, those pages are where you can find links to our episodes. You can find supplemental resources like further reading or uh, our show notes, that sort of thing, things we find interesting uh, through our Facebook page. And if your platform that you'd listen to doesn't allow you reviews, you can leave us a review on the Facebook page. That would be also super duper helpful because it drives traffic there and tricks the computer overlords into sending people our way. Um, you can send us any sort of note you'd like on that social. We would love to hear from you. And speaking of loving to hear from you, we want to know what you think of this episode. And we want to know what you want to learn about. We make this podcast for you. We are nerds and we love doing the research. And really, it's for us, but it's mostly for you. Yeah, so, mostly. Mostly, like 51% minimum. You can reach us if none of the other methods work for you. You can reach us at firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. And we will read that email. Yeah, we, we will. will. Probably respond to it. Maybe. Yes. Most likely. You, you know what else we never say? Hmm. If you are a person who has a very specific um, area of expertise or experience, and there is a topic that you feel like the general public would benefit from hearing Broken Down, and you would like to join us on this show. We would love to talk to you. Seriously, We would please. love, love to hear a voice other than ourselves talk on this sometimes. It's true. Although that does remind me, I need to call one of our listeners because he has been trying to talk to me <laughs> since like episode three. And life yeah. has been crazy. That's on me. I will call you soon if you... If you are listening to this, yes. um, my bad. So yes. 
on that note. Are you ready for some good news? I'm so ready for some good news. You know why? Because I still have to edit before I go to bed tonight. So bring it on. <laughs> Hopefully we made it pretty easy for you. We didn't flub it up too much. <laughs> bring it on. <laughs> good news. Good news. Okay. Speaking of representation, on November 28th, Sarah Fuller became the first female to kick in a Power 5 college football game when she kicked off the second half for Vanderbilt University against the University of Missouri, commonly known in this area as Mizzou. Mizzou! This was a fantastic high-profile story, and we are super-duper-duper able—super glad, super-duper-duper glad to be able to include it as our good news this week. But as I was researching this story to include here— I actually learned that Sarah was not the first female to kick in a college football game. In fact, Liz Heaston became the first female to score points in a college football game in 1997, a whopping 23 years ago, when she scored two extra points for Willamette University. Uh, The only reason that it didn't get covered that much is because it was not as high profile of a college football game. So, today, we say huzzah to Sarah, to Liz, and to the other 17 female players on college football teams. Brava. We also say, if you want to know why we need representation, look at the comments section on some of those articles, and you will quickly understand how representation is good for our society, and how lack of representation creates some toxic jerks. Yes, if you are prone to violence, I I do not recommend looking at that comment section or really any comment section ever on the internet. Yeah, actually don't read the comments. That's bad. We read ours. We don't have any, but as soon as we get them, But ours don't count as the comments. That's true. That's true. All right. I think that's everything. Thank you very much, everybody. We will see you in one week, hopefully, unless both of us have burned out completely and the holidays have killed us, in which case we will drop you a very short note after that or before that or some other time we will let you know um midst of death have some safe and fun holidays and uh, everybody take care of each other